If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. If Luke 11 is spread out among a couple of pages in your Bible, flip to the end. We'll be looking at the final verses of this chapter. Among many other things, Martin Luther is famous for a book called Table Talk. It wasn't a book that he actually wrote, but rather a book that was written after his death. Uh, one of the things that Luther did was have theology students who had left uh, the Catholic Church of the day to stay with him. And they would eat meals together at his table. And while they were eating together, they began to drill Luther with questions. Some of them of a theological nature, some of them of a practical nature, some of them of a whimsical nature. And students began writing down the answers, and eventually those answers were compiled. And so what you have is Martin Luther's Table Talk, a topical collection of his uh, wit and wisdom, uh, and also his fallibility on a great number of topics. What you have there is something different than Luther in his books or in his sermons. You kind of have a Luther unplugged, as it were. That's quite fun to read and quite helpful as well. But in our passage this before us, we also have a man who seems to be unplugged. That is to say, he is unguarded, unyielding in his words, but it is not in any sense a comfortable or a fun conversation that Jesus has at the house of a Pharisee. It is a different kind of table talk where Jesus puts serious and hard answers to questions that people were not asking but should have been asking. Questions that we should be asking of ourselves this morning and are in desperate need of the answers that Jesus gives. What we have is Jesus pointing out the hypocrisy of men who claim to be spiritual, who claimed even to be leaders of his people in that day, and yet they were not. They were, in fact, hypocrites. And the critique that Jesus gives of them provides a lasting warning for us today. And so we want to give great care and attention to what Jesus will say this morning through his word. So I invite you as we begin to follow along as I read Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 37. <clears throat> While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will persecute and kill. 
so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of God. Hear it this morning. The clear theme of Jesus' instruction here is exposing and condemning the hypocrisy of these two groups, these two leaders of religious Judaism in the day, the lawyers and the Pharisees. But that problem has not gone away with those groups. Hypocrisy is still a problem for God's people today. It reveals that some who say that they are the church aren't what they claim to be and reveals that those who are part of the church aren't what they should be. This morning we need to understand what hypocrisy is and why Jesus condemns it here. And in doing so, we need to be quick to examine our own hearts as well. So Jesus identifies two kinds of hypocrisy in this passage. First of all, he identifies hypocrisy in living by God's word. Hypocrisy in living by God's word. Notice how Luke connects what came before to to what we see in this chapter here. He says, while Jesus was speaking, which was just the, the verses previous, while he was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and so he went in and reclined at table. Jesus had just been speaking about the eye of the body being like a lamp for the, for, for the soul, a lamp for light to come in and to go out. And the problem that we will see is that these people at dinner that Jesus is critiquing, like so many that Jesus was worrying about just previous to this, they had poor spiritual vision. They knew the word of God well, but they did not understand it or keep it as God intended. This passage begins by telling us it was a Pharisee that invited Jesus to dinner. We've seen them before in Luke. And you will remember that the Pharisees wanted the word of God to be honored. Their concern was that they themselves live meticulously according to God's word and that they might encourage others to do the same. It is a a good goal. In that sense, one that we would want to imitate and would be well to imitate. The problem was they did not understand the scriptures that they claimed at least to love so much. The reputation they had for being very religious, very godly, was just a sham. Which is why when in Matthew's gospel, Jesus told the crowds, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And the people said, what are you talking about? They're the most holy people we know. And Jesus' point was, they're not holy at all. They have a form of godliness. They have an appearance of godliness. But in truth, they do not know God. Without knowing that they were living a life of hypocrisy. And Jesus says that that hypocrisy of their lives, of seeking to live out the word of God but failing to do so, is seen, first of all, in their concern for outward appearance over inward godliness. And their concern for outward appearance over inward godliness. Jesus accepts this man's invitation to come over and eat with him and almost immediately he does something to offend him. Luke says the Pharisee was astonished. He was shocked 
to see that he did not first wash his hands before dinner. Now, this is not, this is not the, the, the kind of thing when you're a kid and your mom says, go wash up before dinner. This has nothing to do with hygiene. In fact, it's just the opposite. This is about ritual purity. Before they touched food, you see, the, the Pharisees would literally have someone come and pour water over their hands because they believed that they were at least ritually, ceremoniously defiled from being in and amongst a sinful world and having touched and interacted with sinful things and sinful people. And so their desire to be ceremonially clean before God involved meticulous washing of hands so that what they touched and ate did not defile them. They believed that they could be contaminated with the sinfulness of the world by physical touch. The problem is none of that's in the Old Testament as they practiced it. They had traditions that were designed to put a fence around the law. So what they said was, here is the law that you shouldn't break. Be ritually clean before God. Obey this law. And God's told us some ways to keep the law. But we might break that law, so we're going to invent more laws. And laws for those laws. And so they kept putting fence after fence after fence around the law of God with the desire that if we never break through these fences, we will never break God's law. But Jesus doesn't care about those fences. Jesus cares about God's law, but he doesn't care a whit about the fences that Jesus has put up. And so Jesus sits down, the food is brought to him, and while the Pharisee is reaching out to have the water poured over his hands, Jesus picks up the bread and begins eating, and the Pharisee loses it. What are you doing? Don't you know you're going to defile yourself without first washing? How can you do that? And Jesus says to him, You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but on the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give alms as those things that are within? And behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus is making the point about cleaning the outside of the cup, or the Pharisee is, and Jesus is saying, what about the inside? What about the inside? You know what happens if you don't clean the inside of a cup. I've had cups down in my study that I've been down there on a Saturday morning, nice and early, drinking something that had some kind of fructose, fruit, you know, whatever it was in there. And, and I'm done with that on Saturday afternoon. Sunday morning comes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I go down to do some more study in the summertime, and I've got homemade penicillin floating in the bottom of that glass. Now, am I just going to, no, because that's not going to be healthy, right? I, I can go wash the outside of the glass. I can make it shine so that my reflection gleams off there. But if I don't clean the inside of the cup, it's worthless. And Jesus says, likewise with you, you are worried about cleaning your hands, or making the outside look good, but your heart is full of corruption. What about the inside? What about your soul? He says, just like you, you give alms of what is outside of you, your money, he says, give of your heart. Give your very being over to God, and then you will be clean because he will make it so, Jesus says they are fools because they worry about ritual uncleanness and having the appearance of godliness when inside they are sinful and corrupt. They've forgotten about the human heart. Frankly, it's easy, isn't it, to be a Pharisee, to put on a good religious show. It's easy to look pious and to be cleaned up on the outside and think I'm good to go with God. We may sleep in our beds at night. But who are we thinking about during the day? We put money in the plate. 
But what do you do with it when no one's looking? Give me a messy Christian who is concerned for their sin over a Christian who is simply worried about looking good every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Because no matter how messy of a person, no matter how messed up their life is, if they are looking at the heart and wanting God to keep it and to change it, then they are a person of true godliness, not the other, no matter how squeaky clean they may look. That's one kind of hypocrisy. But Jesus goes on to say you can also see it in the Pharisees' concern for insignificant precision over essential godliness. You can be a hypocrite when it comes to living God's word if you have a concern for insignificant precision for you kids. That's P-R-E-C-I-S-I-O-N over essential godliness. Jesus says, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe is the opposite of blessing. It is the pronouncement of a condemnation and a cursing upon someone. And so Jesus pronounces a woe, a curse, upon these hypocritical Pharisees. If they were known for their washing, they were much more known for their tithing. Now the law of God commanded they give back a portion of what God gave to them. And it wasn't just money. It was all kinds of things. In fact, uh, so many people today get caught up on, on that 10%. I've got to give that 10%. That's what in the Old Testament. That's going to do in the New Testament. Well, they actually gave 10% of one thing and 10% of this other thing and 10% of this. So something like 26% of what they had went to God. 26%. So if you want the Old Testament tithe, I'll be glad to take it. We will do lots of good things with that money and that time and that resources for the kingdom of God. My point is, be quick, or be slow rather, be very slow to get hung up on insignificant details like these Pharisees. They went so far as to pull out their spice racks and to to section off exactly 10% in their measurements and go and give it to God. Frankly, I don't know what that looked like. Who were they giving it to? The, the Levites? I mean, I, I, don't know where the, I don't know where the mint and the dill and the cumin, as Jesus talks about later. I don't know where the rue is going. I don't, I don't understand. All I know is they, they use decimal points in figuring out how much to tithe. And Jesus says, you've missed the forest for the trees. You, you got so consumed looking at scales, you miss the huge picture of godliness that you're lacking here. You, you, you're worried about, about, about getting the smallest amount to make sure it goes to the synagogue, to the temple, as an offering to God, but you can't see that right across the way your neighbor is in need. In the Old Testament, God says that doing justice meant things like this. Defending the weak, protecting the poor, welcoming strangers, helping widows, adopting orphans, and more. And notice, Jesus doesn't condemn them for tithing. He simply says, you should have done the tithing as well as justice for God and loving God. You ought to have, you ought, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The question for us is, do we ever get caught up doing our devotions every morning in such a rigorous way that we never help the retired couple down the road who needs their driveway shovel when it snows like this morning? Have we traded the exactness of a number, a figure, a percentage in giving for the joy of giving, of being generous in our giving? How we use our money is important, but how we treat people is a far more interest to God as an indicator of our godliness.
Jesus keeps going, showing the hypocrisy in their concern for being seen by others over being seen by God. They have a concern for being seen by others over being seen by God. If you've ever been in a historic church, that is a church that um, is here in the early uh, decades, maybe even century of our country's founding, then what you will see is something known as box pews. And depending on how the, the church is set up, there's actually a reproduction of the very first Baptist church in America at Southern Seminary. And it's, it's kind of that typical barn style, although the pews go all the way to the wall. And on the, on the inside aisle, there is actually a door that latches shut. So, so you, you, you're sitting straight back and then click, you're, you're in there to go. And some people would actually uh, help pay for the church by buying seating in those box pews for their family. It helped uh, the, the, the church to sustain itself. But the other thing that happened was that very shortly it began to become warped as a hypocritical thing. So that the box seats closest to the pulpit, the, play, the box seats and box pews in the places of prominence became reserved only for those deemed the most important people of the town. Frankly, the Pharisees would have loved that. Because Jesus says here, as we see elsewhere, they love being made much of. They love being escorted to the seat of prominence. If we were here today, that they, they, they would wait until right before Pastor Richard or Pastor Joe was getting up to read Scripture and pray, and they would slowly walk down the front of the aisle saying hi to people, shaking hands, and take their place at the front. They would be doing all that they could to draw attention to themselves and how godly and important they were and because of where they sat. Even within the synagogues, they had seating. This is, this is a real kicker. They had seating as everybody faced the sacred desk where the teacher would sit and explain the scriptures. Their chairs were lined up this way in the front facing the congregation so that everyone would be able to see them and know who they were in their seats of prominence. More than that, the Pharisees loved titles. It wasn't simply enough to say, Shalom, God be with you. They wanted to be addressed by their formal titles. Titles of exceeding godliness and tradition. I heard of one pastor who finished his PhD studies and got up in the pulpit and said, I worked hard for this. I labored long for this. I invested much in this. I expect you now to, to address me not just as pastor, but as doctor. And I thought to myself, I would have either fired the man or left the church. Because Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. You have fallen into hypocrisy because instead of seeking godliness for your heart, you have, seeking, you have sought prominence for your name. You have been worried that people know you rather than that God know you. And we have to ask ourselves the obvious question, what about us? Do we jockey for, for position? Do we seek maybe even in subtle ways for recognition of the church, that we're doing a good job, that we're working hard? Do we need to make sure that everyone knows how learned and how gifted and how competent we are to serve? How lucky God is and maybe this church is even to have us. That's hypocrisy and Jesus denounces it. 
Finally, he says, in the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, as they, as they claimed to want to live out the word of God, instead they had a concern for knowledge of godliness, but were in fact devoid of spiritual life. A concern for knowledge of godliness, but were devoid of spiritual life. Jesus says, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. I don't know about you, but every time I attend a funeral or I have gone with someone to put flowers on a grave, it's, it always seems to me disrespectful to stand right over the casket. In fact, when I was younger, I was taught not to do that, to walk very clearly up the aisles and next to it. But can you imagine not just doing that, but, but just walking through a field and suddenly realizing you're standing on someone's grave? Perhaps even worse, one uh, theologian in Scotland back in the, the late 1600s named Thomas Boston, when he was uh, a very young boy, probably four or five, he was attending a school that was set in a churchyard. And on one of the breaks, he was outside playing and unbeknownst to him, literally stumbled and fell into a fresh open grave where the seal, the lid on the casket had not yet even been nailed down. He says there in that fresh grave, I was providentially made to see the consuming body just brought to the consistence of thin mortar and blackish. That which made an impression on me remaining to this day. I can imagine. I mean, they didn't wait two or three days to put people in the ground. There weren't viewings and, and few, I mean, you died, you went in the ground because there's no embalming. And here's this five-year-old kid that comes face to face with this rotting corpse. He says, I, I never forgot it. I never forgot it. He said it was the stuff of nightmares, and you can imagine so. But here's what Jesus says. That's the spiritual life of the Pharisees, and they don't even know it. They've put on such a veneer of godliness that they have, they have sought for themselves, they have claimed to have a knowledge of godliness, and yet inside they are a rotting corpse. Their soul is the consistence of thin mortar and blackish, in the words of Thomas Boston. They were spiritual zombies, dead inside of the things of God, yet walking around like normal men. That was the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, as they made much of trying to live out the word of God. But Jesus, notice also, identifies another group of hypocrites, those who presume to teach the word of God. So secondly, we see hypocrisy, not just in living out God's word, but in teaching God's word. Hypocrisy in teaching God's word. Jesus has been railing on the Pharisees when Luke says, one of the lawyers answered him. In other words, hey, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, the lawyers are also known as the scribes of the Pharisees, if you've read that phrase in the Gospels. As lawyers, they did not handle your personal injury cases. No, these were, these were men who knew and studied and interpreted and applied the law of God given to Israel by Moses. They were the people that tried to translate what the Ten Commandments and all the other 612 laws meant for daily life. They were the ones who actually taught the Pharisees themselves. But Jesus says they are full of hypocrisy. He says in verse 46, Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Here we see their, the, the, see hypocrisy in their making obedience hard for others, but easy for themselves. 
They make obedience hard for others, but easy for themselves. You need to get this picture in your head. Jesus talks about loading up burdens. I don't know about you, I've never loaded something with a finger. If I, if, I, if I load something, you know, it's the old lift with your legs, not with your back thing. And so you're down here and you're trying to get your, your handhold and, you, and you're, you're picking this thing up and you kind of do the weightlifter thing. Boom! And you're up. And then you've got this thing and then you load it up. And then it's like, next. And of course you all know it's a big box of books that, that I'm moving. But, but he says, this is what they're doing to people. They've come up with all these laws, all these rules, all these regulations, and this is what it's like. They're like, yeah, come here. I'll teach you how to be godly. Turn around. One burden. Here's another burden. Boom. Here's another burden. Now go try and live a godly life that way. Look how much God loves you. And they're just like struggling to get out. And yet, what do they do? Jesus says, they don't even lift a finger for their own life. There's no burden for them. What does this look like exactly? Let's get this clear in our head. What it meant was the heaping of traditions and traditions and traditions on top of the simplest of God's laws. So, for example, keep the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Exodus 28. That meant in part no work, a day of rest, trusting in God's provision of physical provision, which pictured his provision of spiritual salvation. That seems like a good law. In a world where everybody worked every day of the week, to be told by God, take a break, Love me, rest in me, rejoice in me. That sounds like a good thing. But how are you going to do it? How, how can I make sure that in the normal course of my life, I actually keep that law? What was work and what wasn't? Well, here's what one lawyer said. A person was not permitted to carry an object in his right hand or in his left hand or in his bosom or on his shoulder. But he was allowed to carry something on the back of his hand or on his foot, or in his mouth, or on his elbow, or in his ear, or in his hair, or in his wallet carried mouth downwards, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in, his, in, in the, 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 hem, the hem of his sandal. Sounds easy, doesn't it? No, not at all. It sounds like a miserable burden that would have made anyone hate God and his law. What we've heard Pastor Richard reading from Psalm 119 is a man saying, God, I love your law. I find wisdom and freedom and confidence and salvation. And now you're listening to these scribes telling you, here's what it means to live according to God's law. And they're saying, I hate God's law. I hate God. This is miserable. I don't want to trust this kind of a God. These scribes are like, in recent stories, we've heard the IRS agents who know the tricks and therefore take more than the allowed exemptions for themselves so that they put the burdens on everyone else but do not lift a finger to bear them themselves. It's so easy for preachers to set expectations for people that outweigh Scripture itself, that they themselves have no intention of keeping, and the result is not leading people towards godliness. It's only a weight that drags them farther away from God. But the scribes did more than that. They were also hypocrites in that they, they were honoring the dead but living like their persecutors. They were honoring the dead but living like their persecutors. Specifically, that means those who persecuted the dead, those that were dead and killed as martyrs. Jesus says in verse 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. 
Therefore also the wisdom of God says, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Imagine in your mind being at a memorial service for victims of 9-11, being at the graveside where they're being honored and active known terrorists coming and putting flowers on the graves. How would that make you feel? Jesus says that's how he feels when he sees these scribes going out to the traditional burial places of the prophets that were martyred for their faith and putting up little memorial stones in their honor. He says, you live and act just like the people who first killed them centuries before. You are, in fact, by your actions, bearing witness that they've been killed by your fathers as martyrs. Therefore, now the blood is on your hands. He says, all the bloods of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world are on your hands. Who was the first person killed for his faith in God? Adam's son Abel. He was killed by his brother who resented his faith. We read about him in Genesis 4, right at the beginning of the Old Testament. But who is a Zechariah? Why is he significant? In our Bible, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, but you see the Jews had a different arrangement. Second Chronicles was the last book in their Bible in Jesus' day. And guess who shows up at the end of Chronicles? A man named Zechariah. He is the man who is trying to call back the people of God to faith and a wicked king has him killed in the sanctuary. He is the last person recorded in the Old Testament to be martyred for his faith in God. So Jesus is saying from beginning to end, from A to Z, for all of biblical history, Satan has been working to stop the plan of God by unleashing his rage against his people, and he's used hypocrites to do it. And now you take their place among them. You, scribes, are just like the murderers who killed the prophets. In fact, Luke even hints at it here. They are so offended by what Jesus says, they begin to plot and conspire against him. They will take their place now and bringing to fulfillment the persecution of God's prophets by killing the perfect prophet, the final and most important prophet, Jesus Christ himself. Finally, Jesus says that the hypocrisy of the lawyers is seen while they are declaring salvation, but preventing people from receiving it. Their hypocrisy is seen when they are declaring salvation, but preventing people from receiving it. Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As one who stands behind this desk, I can hardly think of anything worse than that. Those that would claim to be the teachers of God's word that actually subvert and pervert that teaching. They claim to preach a message of salvation, but are only blind guides. They aren't saved. They don't know God's salvation, and they can't lead anyone else to be saved either. They're like a man with a map to a wrong city trying to give directions, but can only hinder people from arriving at their destination. Even just thinking about coming up at the end of this month when we're going to the Philippines. One of the things that we have, that we've actually had permission to especially print is a book that attacks the, the kind of American garbage that's washed up on their shores along with many other places called the Prosperity Gospel. 
when I think about that message, that false way of salvation preached by men and women who sell millions of dollars of books praying on the poor, I cannot fathom standing before God's throne on the final day in their shoes. I cannot fathom standing before the Almighty and having to answer for being an imposter in the pulpit who preached a false gospel that led millions away to hell. Jesus said it is the height of hypocrisy and one day they will stand before God and have to answer for it. So how do you respond to these woes? One way is to delight in them. To, 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 to get behind Jesus and kind of slap him on the back and say, you go, you go, you tell them what they're going to get. You tell them about the judgment that's coming upon them. And in one sense, the Bible says, on the final day, there will be justice and we will rejoice in it. But I think there's another way that we should respond this morning. During the great plague in, in London, J.C. Ryle says that people, quote, took note of the smallest symptoms that appeared on their bodies in a way they had never noticed before. Why? Because whole families were being wiped out from this disease. And so at the smallest hint that they might be getting sick, they were gone. They were away from their family. They might be preserved. They were seeking some kind of medical help. Likewise, Ryle says that always we ought to watch our hearts with such double watchfulness. And I think that's how we should respond to these woes. Why? I'll tell you why. Did you notice the number of woes that he gave? We have seven points, four for the Pharisees and three for the scribes. But you notice that point one began with Jesus saying, you fools. Six times Jesus uttered a pronouncement of judgment on these hypocrites before him. Six times he gave woes upon them. And if you know the Bible, you know that's odd. Because six is a number of incompletion. It lacks fullness. Where's the seventh woe? That's the same question that readers ask the first time they open the, the book of Isaiah. And over those first five chapters, we see Isaiah the prophet looking at the people of Israel and pronouncing woe after woe after woe upon them for the very same kinds of things that Jesus calls the Pharisees and the scribes out for. Woes of condemnation for their sin against God. But again, five chapters, there's only six woes. Where is the seventh? Where is the final, complete condemnation of God against these people? Well, as you're reading Isaiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5, you see, woe, 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 and then you get to chapter 6. And just after declaring woes upon Israel for their sins, Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord God sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up in glory, with mighty angels flying around him declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what is his response? Woe is me. Woe is me. In the midst of a sinful, wicked generation, I also am a sinful man, a man of unclean lips. The final woe was reserved for Isaiah himself, who does not stand any better than the rest of the people when confronted with the holiness of God. This morning we've heard six woes, and now we need to hear the seventh. We need to hear of our own hypocrisy. 
Maybe this morning you were nailed to the wall by right at the beginning by Jesus' example of going to eat with those who were hypocrites, that he knew were hypocrites. You may be quick to condemn sin in a person's life, but very slow to tell them of the way of salvation. If that's you, then woe to you. Repent. Put your faith in Christ who died for your sins that you might be forgiven. Then follow the example of your Savior who went to save the lost just like you. Others of you may have been confronted by the reality that you live much more like Pharisees than a disciple of Jesus. You may be consumed with vanity and pride, striving to look good on the outside, but are corrupt with cherished sin on the inside. If that's you, then woe to you. Put your faith in Christ. Repent. Remember that He died, that you might be forgiven. Then pray that He will pour out His Spirit upon you and give you a new heart, changing you from the inside out. Still yet, you may be here and in some capacity be a teacher of Scripture, either in this church or somewhere else. And in hearing this message, you may have come to realize that you are more like a scribe than a shepherd of God's people. You push others to go far and above what the Bible requires to be holy, but you rarely do anything yourself to pursue godliness. Rather than encourage faith, you send people off in pursuit of a false gospel. If that is you, then woe to you. Repent. Put your faith in Christ who died for your sins that you might be forgiven. Then study the word of God afresh and begin declaring the truthfulness of God's way of salvation. That grace and mercy might be the great theme of your life and of their life as God saves sinners. Today all of us, all of us, wherever we're at, there is hypocrisy in our hearts. It may not look like the Pharisees. It may not look like the scribes. But it's there and we all need the same thing. To hear a woe pronounced upon us that we might repent and turn and hear again and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he died on a cross for our sins. That he rose back to life from that tomb and ascended to the Father. That he reigns as Lord and will not tolerate hypocrisy among his people. This morning, this is the resounding application from this text. Repent. And turn to Christ that you might live and be changed. Father, we we cannot change by ourselves. We must have your spirit at work. So God, this is our prayer this morning. That you would hear us. That you would forgive us. That you would cleanse us. Father, help us not to refuse this hard word. But God, may we accept it. May we accept it like Isaiah who felt as if he was coming apart at the seams and light of your holiness because of his sin and yet found forgiveness through your atoning work and therefore laid his own life at the altar and said, God, wherever you need me to go, whatever you need me to say, whatever you need me to do, here I am, send me. Father, may may all of us be that kind of person. May all of us have that kind of response. Father, we pray that you would answer these prayers, that you would answer this request for the glory of your name, for the good of this church. Father, help us not to bring reproach to you, but God, may people make much of you because we make so little of ourselves. God, make us to be a humble people who are thankful. 
for grace and the change that it brings in our life. We pray this for the sake of Christ's name. Amen.